Welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's good to have you join us this morning. And I'm sure hoping that you're looking forward to a nice, rainy, dreary day, all of us, because it seems like that's the one we're going to get. But in spite of all that, we can be joyful, right? That's our theme for this morning. We're going to figure that out in a couple minutes. We're in a series that we're calling Fruitology. And in the series, we're trying to add thoughts and words to the harvest that God wants to produce in our lives. And the metaphor that's often used in the Bible is the metaphor of fruit. And so Jesus, through the Spirit, wants us to be fruitful. And he actually names some of the things that he wants to be evident in our lives and beneficial to other people. Now, at the beginning of the series, a couple of weeks ago, we gave you a homework assignment. How many of you at least remember what the assignment is? Raise your hand. Okay, good. L- less than 20%. I- I'm not sure what that means. I, I think I'm quitting. Uh, well, no, the assignment is this. We're all going to memorize together over the next few weeks the two verses in the book of Galatians in which we find the fruit of the Spirit listed. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And so just to practice, here we go, let's read it together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. All right, just one slide with a couple blanks. You got it? Next slide. Here we go. You all do it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, forbearance, good, goodness. Yeah, yeah, I got a little stuck there. Against such things there is no... Okay, you got a few more weeks. We're going to be in the series, but we're not staying in the series forever, so you need to get that homework done. Last week I mentioned that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, always works with Scripture to produce this crop, this harvest in our lives. And as I was thinking about that this week, my mind kept going to Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is all about meditation. And since I'm asking you to memorize those verses, the reason we memorize is so we have those ideas, those themes, those verses tucked away so that at any time we can pull them out and think about them. And not just pull them out at any time on our own, The Spirit then can take those ideas and those verses that we've committed to memory and help us think about them, reflect on them. We're putting those tools into His hands to operate in our lives. Psalm 1 paints a picture. Interestingly, it's very similar to the fruit picture. In fact, it's all about fruit. Here are the first three verses from Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. Now look, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. There's the idea again. God likes the metaphor of fruit. Now, in the picture, notice that the water that the tree is kind of sucking in through its roots is the meditation part. And so it says, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on the law. That's similar to the tree taking in the water. But here's an amazing thing. The tree does not take in water and then shoot out water. An amazing thing happens. The tree takes in, the tree's in your yard. They take in water, 
but they produce fruit. And that is what Jesus wants us to know. That's what he talks about in John 15. That's what Paul's talking about in Galatians 5. The Spirit takes the Scripture, those ideas, and as our minds are kind of wrapping around and thinking about the Scripture, the Spirit then takes those ideas and so works them in us that we produce fruit. It isn't just that we spout the verses, even though you may be able to do that. The goal is not meditation. The goal is not memorization. The goal is fruit production. Now here's a, something you may not have thought of. What, what good does the fruit produced do for the tree that produces it? Nothing. Isn't that right? The tree that produces the fruit really doesn't get any benefit from the fruit. In fact, if the fruit is not used by others, the fruit will drop to the ground, the fruit will eventually rot, the seeds will germinate as it rains, and eventually those seeds will sprout. And if nothing's done, all of those little seeds will take root underneath the tree. They will all grow up in the little saplings, and before you know it, the saplings will strangle out the life of the original tree. Now, why is that important? Well, because it's easy for us to begin to think that our fruit production is somehow for our benefit. You ever think like that? Well, if fruit production is for our benefit, that would be like decorations on a tree. Yeah, that season's coming pretty soon, right? What do decorations on a tree do? They call attention to the tree. And normally the conversation goes like this. Oh, your tree is beautiful. Where did you get those decorations? Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Right? You get that? Now, is that what we do with fruit trees? Is that what we do with an apple tree? Is that what we do with oranges and lemon? No. In fact, the fruit on a fruit tree is beneficial when it's taken off and it nourishes and gives life to others. That's the fruit is not to draw attention to the tree. Fruit production is for the benefit of others. That's why Jesus can say, as you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And then Paul says, as you're with the Spirit, produce fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, not for our own benefit, for the benefit of others. So we're not producing fruit, so people point at us and say, oh my goodness, look at a great life that person living. No, don't touch, don't touch. We're not trophies in a case or Christmas trees on display. We're fruit trees producing things that nourish and give life to others. That's the idea. Now, here's a helpful hint for you. If you need a little help meditating, memorizing, working with that, I'm not sure if you realize this, Calvary Church has a devotional. And so some people in the communications department, Jen Gunning in particular, Jen listens back to the message on Sunday, and she, will, she writes two or three devotionals during the week based on the message. You can sign up for that devotion. It'll come in an email, and you'll get two devotionals during the week. Because it isn't enough for us just to kind of gather together, think about what God's saying for a few minutes. You can sign up, and during the week, your memory will be jogged again, and then again as you read the devotional, and it'll give you an opportunity to think and to add action to what we're talking about. Now, as the Scripture speaks, the Spirit takes those ideas takes them from our heads to our hearts, works them in our lives so that we produce fruit for the nourishment and benefit of other people. What are, what, what are the big themes? Okay, we got Bible, 
We've got spirit, we've got grace, we've got faith. When you read the Bible, those three things keep coming up over and over and over. You're reading the Bible, and it's all about grace because we need it. We're not going to do it ourselves. And it's all about faith, not in what we've done, but in what Jesus has done. It's all about the love of God. And some of you know that those are also the same exact themes that come out of the Reformation. And this weekend, around the world, Christians are celebrating the 500th year of the Reformation. And the Reformation is nothing more than going back to the three themes of Scripture and grace and faith and God's love. Not doing it ourselves, but trusting that God does it for us in Jesus and then makes it real in our lives through the Spirit. So that's kind of the memory and the, and the meditation part. Well, let's move on now and talk about the joy part. We're going to talk about joy this morning. And uh, immediately some of you are going to say, well, Charles, I know all about joy. You can end this sermon now, and then I'd really be joyful if we finish right now. No, no, no. You see, thinking like that proves you don't really know what joy is. We're going to start by trying to understand joy a little bit, because I'm afraid that we really don't understand joy the way that we should. When I say the word joy, usually I think, and probably you think, Things on the outside, things in my immediate circumstance and situation that cause me to feel happy and warm on the inside. If that's what joy is, as the Bible uses it, then often we would have no reason, and most people in the Bible would have no reason to be joyful. It isn't just circumstantial things that make you feel good because they match your expectations, and all of a sudden it's that when you're joyful on the inside. It doesn't work like that. So to help you understand, let me ask you a question. What was the greatest, most joyful, happiest day of your life thus far? Just take a minute and think about it. Maybe you thought the day you were born, right? You don't remember back then. Remember, the day you were born. The first time you sucked air into your lungs and you became a living being on your own. Is that the happiest day for you? Or maybe it was the day you took your first step. You were immobile, now you're mobile, right? And uh, your parents regretted that day, I know, but... but you know, you used to be able to put the kid here, and he or she would stay there. All of a sudden, they, and well, now they take their first step, and you don't know where they're going to be. You have to keep your eye on them. Maybe it was the day you said your first word. And, uh, boy, that hasn't stopped since then. But your first word was probably not daddy or mommy. Most kids' first word is no, right? Maybe it was that. Maybe it was um, the first day you read a book, and a whole new world was opened up to you, right? You could read a book. Or maybe it was when you got your first job. You were now financially independent. And some of you, are your parents, are waiting for that day to come so you won't be dependent on them. Maybe it was the day the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Uh, they didn't win that yet. <laughs> maybe your greatest day was your first date. Remember sweaty palms and underarms on that first date? Maybe the greatest day was the day you fell in love. Maybe it was the day you had your child, the day of your wedding. You, you had a great day, right? I believe we can make the case, biblically speaking, that the greatest day of our lives is October 29th, 2017. This should be it. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to be pain and suffering today, right? That, that's not guaranteeing an eagle's win or anything. Um, what is it? Well, here's what the Bible says. In Psalm 8, 118, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in. That's kind of interesting, right? Notice the psalm does not say, yesterday is the day the Lord has made. You should rejoice as you look back on that day. That's not what it says. It 
It doesn't say, tomorrow, that's the day God's made. And you should look forward to that day. But here's the reality. We often spend today looking back on with regret on what happened in the past. Therefore, we can't rejoice and have joy today. We have regret and feel guilt over what happened in the past. Or we look forward with fear and worry and anxiety about what, happened, well, what may happen tomorrow or in the future. Well, as we look back or as we look forward, all of the joy from today is just evaporating, right? You ever notice kids don't have that problem? I mean, do, you, you saw a bunch of little kids up here, right? Do, do three-year-olds really live with a lot of regret of what they did yesterday? I mean, they, they don't even remember. They couldn't give a rip about how nasty they were yesterday. They kept you up all night. They don't care, right? They're into today. How about little kids? Are they living with lots of anxiety about tomorrow? No, they live in the moment, right? But uh, I often live life in two categories. Waiting to live and live, right? I'm either living or waiting to live. But most of the time, I'm waiting to live. You, you ever do this, right? I'm in meetings waiting to get out so I can live. I'm in traffic waiting to get out so then I can live. I'm dealing with the pressured situation and I'm waiting to get out so I can live. I'm waiting in the line shopping for something and I'm waiting to get out. I'm standing on the tee waiting to hit my shot so I can get on with life. We often live waiting to live rather than living. But what does the psalmist say? You're living life backwards. Don't look back at the past and live with regret today. Don't look to the future and live with anxiety or worry about tomorrow. Live today. I'll let you know a little secret. Today is all we've got. So let's be joyful and rejoice in the one day we've got. Even though Penn State lost that game yesterday. But you know, there was a great quote that Franklin made last week. Maybe he should have made it yesterday too. But he, here's what he said last week when they played Michigan. He came out and the reporter said to him, what did you tell your players? And here's what he said. Just play the next six seconds. The average play in a football game lasts six seconds. He said, don't think of a whole game. Don't think of a quarter. Don't think of two minutes. You just play the next six seconds. That's pretty good advice, you know. I think that that's what the psalmist is saying. You just live the next six seconds. You live the rest of this service. Rejoice in this service, right? And when you leave, rejoice on that car ride home, even if you hit all the red lights, and if it's pouring rain outside, if the eagles lose and you can't rejoice, this is the only day we've got. So let's be joyful and thankful in what God's given and all the gifts that we get to experience in the moment. You ever realize that... Um, God is a joyful God. And, and this, this is going to show us that we often don't understand or don't read well what the Bible says. A while ago, I came across an interpretation or a rewriting of the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, the Lord said, let there be this and that. And all. So it's rewritten from the perspective of how we often consider or look at God. So here we go. In the beginning, it was 9 o'clock. So God had to go to work. He filled out a requisition form to separate light from darkness. He considered making stars to beautify the night and the planets and fill the skies, but thought that that sounded like too much work. 
Besides, God thought, that's not my job. So he decided to knock off early, called it a day. He looked at everything he did that day, and he said, it'll have to do. On the second day, God separated the waters from dry ground, and he made all the dry land flat, plain, functional, so that the whole earth would look like Florida. He thought about making mountains and valleys and glaciers and jungles and forests, but he decided it wouldn't be worth the effort. So he looked at all that he had done and he said, it'll have to do. On the next day, God made a pigeon to fly in the air and carp to swim in the waters and a cat to creep along dry ground. And God thought about making millions of other species of all sizes, shapes, and colors, but he couldn't drum up enough enthusiasm for any of that. In fact, he wasn't crazy about that cat at all. So God looked at all that he had made, and he said, it'll have to do. And at the end of the week, God was seriously burned out. So he breathed a sigh and said, thank me, it's Friday. And he knocked off for the weekend. Now, isn't that often how we think of God? Why? Because that's how we go through our days, right? That little snippet is nothing more than a projection of how we go through our days. Now, how does that compare with, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But, you know, interesting, if you go back and read Genesis, actually read what's there, you'll find at the end of every day it says this. God said it was so. God saw it was good. God said it was so. God saw it was good. And I believe he smiles at the end of every day. Think of the effort and the length and the details that he went to every day. God said it was so. God saw it was good. And when it's all done, he says, God said it was so. God saw it was very good. That's rejoicing in the day, right? God didn't cut corners. God's not going through the motions. God's rejoicing in the day. He's in the moment. And in that moment, he's putting forth all of his effort. And we get to experience all of that in our world. And yet we often go with blinders on drudgery, waiting to live rather than living, regretting the past, worrying about the future, and in the meantime, missing today. How do you think of Jesus? How do you picture him? Uh, here's my guess. How many of you have ever read or watched the TV show Winnie the Pooh? Raise your hand. All right, now be honest. There's one character in Winnie the Pooh that would be the opposite of joy, right? Who would that character be? That would be Eeyore, right? Now, here's why I mention that. I think that a lot of people that go to church, I think they think that Jesus must have gone through life like Eeyore. Can I show you a couple of verses that should change your mind? Look at these verses from John 15. Now, we looked at John 15, that abiding chapter. But look at this. You're going to find the fruit we're talking about thus far, love and joy. You're going to find them mixed together here. Look at this. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. There's love, the first fruit, right? God loved me, I love you. Now my love's in you, you're filled to overflowing. You go love other people. Remain in my love. That's that abide word. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. Just I've kept my Father's command and remain in his love. Now look at this. I have told you all this so that my joy may be in you. Jesus isn't Eeyore. I mean, Jesus is a party guy, right? I'm telling you all this so that my joy may be in you. And it's so much joy that when my joy, Jesus says, is in you, your joy will be complete. Jesus is joyful. In fact, the Bible gives us this message. 
There is no being in the universe more joyful than God. We've got a joyful God and a joyful Savior. Where do we get off living more like Eeyore than living more like Jesus? Understanding joy. Well, our purpose isn't just to understand joy. Our purpose is to cultivate joy. And in order to do that, I'm going to ask you to turn to the end of the book of Philippians. So turn to the end of Philippians. The book of Philippians, it would be a really good assignment for you to read this week. Four short chapters. And it's often called the letter of joy. The word joy, rejoice, appears like all kinds of times in Philippians, right? We've worked our way through Philippians. You can go back and look at podcasts. Philippians is all about joy. We'll talk a little bit about the circumstance later. But follow along as I read. I'm going to pick out some verses beginning in chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians 3.20. Paul writes to the people of Philippi, and here's what he says. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 4 of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evidence to all. Evident to all, the Lord is near. Look at all the fruit of the Spirit Paul's mentioning. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. All the fruit are kind of there, right? Jump over to verse 10. I rejoiced, here it is again, greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am now saying this, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Letter of joy, regardless of the circumstances, right? It's not outside, trigger, and inside. And look at the last verse of the book. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So how do we cultivate joy? I'm going to tease out a, a couple of things you need to do. So you need a pencil and a paper, write these down. Especially if you're more like Eeyore than you are like Jesus, all right? You need to write these down. Here's the first one. Recognize that joy is a gift of grace. The word grace in Greek is charis. The word joy is kara. <laughs> kind of interesting, right? Kind of grace and joy, they go together, right? How does Paul end the letter on joy? By reminding us the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be with you. That's why we can have joy and rejoice. Now, why don't we often rejoice? I'll tell you why. Because you can only do one or the other. And here they are. You can count your blessings that come from God's grace. So it would be a great thing for us to do this week. Take a little sheet of paper, a three-by-five card, legal size sheet of paper, whatever you want to do. You take a little sheet of paper, and you just write down on there, gifts of God's grace. If joy is a gift of grace, what are the gifts God's given you that should cause rejoicing to happen to you? Your past has been forgiven. All of your sins have been taken care of. It doesn't matter where you've been. God accepts you. God loves you. You've got an awesome future looking forward to. And then add all the tangible gifts that surround you. So the one thing you can do is you can count your blessings that come by God's grace. And if you don't, 
And if I don't, and I know this from experience, if I don't count my blessings, I will count other people's blessings. And if I count other people's blessings, I become jealous and envious. Isn't that right? You can only do one or the other. You will either count your blessings or you'll count other people's blessings. And when you count other people's blessings, the mental process kind of goes like this. He's got a great wife. Look at this wife I got. They have great kids. Look at these spoiled brats I got. Look at the job he's got. Look at the job she's got. And everybody knows I'm smarter than her. Look at their new car. Look at that house. Look at the vacation house. Look at the pool. Look at their reputation. Look at how everybody fawns all over them. Look at the clothes that they get to wear. Look at the memberships that they have after their name. Now, let me ask you, as you're counting other people's blessings, is your joy just kind of skyrocketing on the inside? You're giving thanks to God for his goodness and grace to all those people whose blessings you're counting, right? No, no, it doesn't work that way. When we count other people's blessings, our joy goes down and our envy goes up. And if envy's going up, and you realize or you begin to say, well, I deserve all of that. They don't deserve it. You're not being filled with joy. You're being filled with resentment and discouragement and anger. And pretty soon you're ticked off at God because he doesn't know how to run this deal. But it's not a God problem. It's not other people's problems. It's our problem. Count your blessings that God's given you by grace. We didn't earn all of the really important things that we've got, did we? We didn't earn all that stuff. You didn't earn your parents. You didn't earn the fact that you were born here rather than somewhere else. You didn't earn your IQ. You didn't earn your athletic prowess. You didn't earn your physical stamina or metabolism. You didn't earn any of that stuff. God's grace gave us all of that. So how are we going to cultivate joy? You're going to count your blessings, not other people's blessings. And you're going to have to be disciplined to do it. Uh, the verse that goes with that's the last verse of the chapter, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. All right, well, here, here's the second thing you need to do. Not just recognize joy as a gift of grace. All right, next one. You have to realize that joy is divine contentment. Did you notice those verses I read? Here, they're up on the screen again because you probably missed them. I'm not saying thank you, Paul writes, because I've learned to be content because I'm in need. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances I'm in. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every and every situation. Whether I'm hungry or well-fed, whether I have plenty or I live in want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's in prison when he writes the letter. Did you know that? He's a prisoner for preaching the message of Jesus Christ. And he was arrested, he was tried, and he was thrown into prison. And he says... I've learned to be content in any and every situation. In fact, he's counting his blessings by grace. He's even counting the blessing that the Philippians did a little collection in their church and they sent him a gift. And he says, I'm so thankful for your gift. I can't believe it. I don't deserve it. I'm joyful and rejoicing over the gift. Not that I really need the gift because I've learned to be content in any and every situation. But you need verse 13. You can't do 11 and 12 in, your, in and of yourself. This isn't a try harder deal. What's 13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why can we be joyful in any and every situation? 
because Jesus is with us. And that's the greatest gift of God's grace. We can do all things through Jesus who strengthens us. The third thing we need to do to cultivate joy is to recognize that joy is an eternal perspective. The verses that I read from chapter 3 say this. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you like to travel? Raise your hands. I like to visit far away. There you go. How many of you really enjoy going through security, waiting for the airline ride and the bumpy? How many of you really enjoy all that, right? Yeah. We like to travel not because of getting there. We like to travel because of the destination. That's kind of what Paul's saying, right? I like to travel, but I hate going through security. I hate driving all the way down to the airport and traffic. It's a mess trying to get there. Then you go to Wally Park, right? And that takes forever. You get on the bus, and these other people are ahead of you. You got to stand up. You got the heavy bag. Then you get off. The guy wants a big tip because your bag's overweight. Then you have to wait in line to check in. And of course, all the people ahead of you. Then you try to get on the plane, and all the morons on the plane ahead of you, they all had. Bags that go over the top, underneath you, have nowhere to put your bag. Your bag's little, tiny, and small. It will fit anywhere, but there's nowhere for your bag to go because people don't follow the rules on a plane, right? You love that travel, right? No, but we love the destination. So you sit on the plane with your knees up around your throat, <laughs> and you pay $45 for that little lunch now, and you're sitting there trying to eat, and you're smiling, right? You're not smiling because of the plane ride. You're smiling because later that afternoon you're going to be on the beach. Because later that afternoon you're going to be in the park. Because later that afternoon you're going to be on the fishing ship. Later that afternoon you're going to be where you want to be. Along the way, we need to be joyful. Knowing that God is loving and God is caring. And he's got an awesome destination prepared for us. Oh, and by the way, while you're on the journey... Live out the fruit of what the destination's going to be like. You see, all of those character qualities, love, joy, peace stuff, and patience and stuff, all those things are nothing more than the qualities of the destination. So live out the qualities of the destination during the rest of the journey. That's all Paul's saying. The qualities of the kingdom, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good, they're the qualities. Live them out now. Because that's where you're going to be spending forever. Joy is an eternal perspective. Well, we've got one last one here. The only way we're going to be joyful in this joyless world is to focus on Jesus. Now, here are a couple interesting verses from Hebrews. And maybe you've never looked at them before, but they're kind of strange at first. Look at from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded... By such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out. That's the journey, right? Run with endurance through security onto the plane on your, on the, with your bags. Run with endurance through that. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. Now look at this. For the joy set before him... He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So why did Jesus go through the cross? What was he looking at as he went through the cross? As he was going through 
that slanderous trial, as he's going through being beaten and whipped, as he's going on being deserted by his friends, as he's going through the crucifixion, as he's going through hearing from his father, I abandon you, I'm leaving. And Jesus, what did Jesus set his sights on? There was joy. That's weird, right? What's the joy? Well, let me ask you another question. Was the joy that Jesus set his eyes on, was, get, was the joy getting back to heaven? I mean, getting out of this sewer, was that the joy? No, he didn't have to come. Was the joy getting back to the angels and, you know, having a nice warm bed to get into rather than live here where he didn't have any? No. Was it getting back to heaven where he's respected and loved and the angels are waiting and everybody's kind of worshiping him? Was that? No. He had all those things before he came. In fact... What's the only thing that Jesus has after the crucifixion that he didn't have before the crucifixion? Only one thing. Do you know what it is? It's us. We're it. The only thing Jesus has after the cross that he didn't have before the cross is us. And what does he say? For the joy set before me, for having my people back for having all of those that were lost found and brought back that's the joy so you want to know how to be joyful you focus on the one who made you his joy and make him your joy and if you make the one who made you his joy your joy you'll have real joy in the midst of a world that doesn't even understand joy. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you're a joyful God and we're made in your image and you want us to rejoice and experience joy. And Jesus, we're thankful that you're a joyful Savior who was full of joy and laughter. Yeah, you were acquainted with sorrow and grief, but joy overwhelmed those things. But Jesus, most importantly, we're thankful that you made us your joy and you completed the mission with us in mind. Well, now, Lord, it's our turn to live out our mission. All we do is follow you. Just like you made us your joy, help us to make you our joy and complete our mission. We pray in your name.